Welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes edition, and we are finally here. Uh, the book, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. And uh, to beat the Amazon algorithm, I won't bore you with how this works, pre-ordering is essential. So community, get out there, buy 10 books, tell everybody about The Last Best Hope because we think this book can change the nature of our politics. And we are going to spend the next year and a half or so trying to make that true. And uh, as the marketing machine gets going, I will start our new series, as I promised, which is looking at what was I thinking when I actually wrote the book? I mean, I think this is a fun thing that people who aren't writers by a living are interested in. How do you go about writing a book? What do you think? So I'm not going to go through the book word for word. I want you each to buy 10 of them and get all your friends to buy 10 of them and to pre-order as many as possible. Again, go to Amazon, click the pre-order, and it will be there early next year. But it's vital that we get the pre-order going. But rather than go through the book word for word, which is why you're going to buy and read it on your own, and then we're going to talk about it as a community, I thought it would be interesting to have this as a companion piece. What was I thinking as I was writing, what was I trying to accomplish? How did I go about it? And that this would give some clues as to the book itself and really enrich the experience. So our new series will be that one day a week um, for a while, we're going to go through every chapter of the book, the introduction, the nine precepts that underline American realism and their history and tell those stories. And then assume that if we all follow these precepts, how would we form, given all this, a foreign policy for today that unites the Jacksonian base of the Republican Party around realism with the Jeffersonians, who are a large uh, tribe within the Republican Party. If we unite these two groups around realism, we have a new meaning and old going back into our history foreign policy that's suited for the new era that we find ourselves in. We'll also do another, not now that Garrett's great book is done, we'll also do another cultural issue or look at what's going on as well, but that once a week we're going to go through what I was thinking through the book and that this would be the first one as a way to keep it top of mind and also add, I hope, a really enjoyable, creative, interesting way to look at how writing and thinking actually work. And so off we go. Um, when I started writing this book, and again, you know, I love stories. I love telling stories. I the first two great pieces of literature in Western civilization are two stories. The Iliad by Homer is about a war, and the Odyssey is about a guy trying to make his way home from the war. And into these basic stories are almost all the feelings, good and bad, that Westerners have. And that's why Homer is still timeless and still worth reading, that these stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey, stick in your mind precisely because they're stories that are explicable and understandable. And that's what history at its best, should be. And so we're going to tell an awful lot of stories through this book before we reach the conclusion, which is a realist foreign policy fit for purpose that politically unites the wings of the Republican Party, the Jacksonian base with the Jeffersonians, as a new dominant way forward after the discredited neocons have run fleeing to the Democratic Party from their abominations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're going to tell stories about how this evolves, that these principles are organic, that they evolve out of our common American history, uh, but that these principles are timeless because they're part of our story. So our first story 
is is the epigram which begins the book and explains the name for the book, The Last Best Hope. And it comes from Abraham Lincoln in his message to Congress of December 1863, where he said, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth, which is a wonderful quote about describing the United States. And the story, though, is very interesting that Lincoln told this 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 bold prognostication about American democracy at a really very bad moment in American history. And uh, part of these stories are to remind us that we've been in bad spaces before, much as we are now. If anything, we've been in worse spaces, I'd argue Lincoln was, and come through with flying colors because of our adherence to American republicanism and, more importantly, our belief in each other um, and the realism that underlies that. And Lincoln said this, that we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth in the middle of the year of miracles of the Southern Confederacy. If you look at things from June 1862, when Robert E. Lee is forced to get a battlefield promotion during the Seven Days Battles in June, July 1862, because Joseph E. Johnston, who was the commander of the Southern Army, the Army of Northern Potomac at the time, is very badly wounded, and so Lee is forced to take his place. And Lee then initiates a year of miracles from June 1862 through June 1863. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia can do almost no no wrong. They win um, a series of amazing victories outnumbered every time. Lee manages to outgeneral George B. McClellan during the Seven Days Battles, saving Richmond and the Confederacy. He goes on to defeat John Pope uh, at the Second Battle of Manassas. Despite the fact that the Union Army incredibly have Lee's orders, there were three unburned cigar wrappers with with his orders as to what he's doing when he invaded the North, meaning that McClellan reinstated his commander, knows every single move Lee is going to make. Despite that, Lee fights McClellan to a tactical draw at the Battle of Antietam in Maryland, which is the single bloodiest day of the war. Uh, Lee is forced to retreat, so there, it, it is a strategic Union victory, but tactically a draw, despite the fact that, incredibly, the North knew exactly what Lee was going to do. It shows that's pretty good generaling on Lee's part. Lee goes on to decimate Burnside when he tries the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, and then perhaps he, he has his masterpiece, the Battle of Chancellorsville in the spring of 1863, where he divides his army despite being, despite being outnumbered by Joseph Hooker two to one, divides his army, and Stonewall Jackson leads a flanking move through the forest um, in the wilderness area near where I used to live in Culpeper. I used to go for hikes here for fun and to see the battlefield is, is to kind of way to re-link re, re me to our history. Um, Lee crushes Hooker despite being outnumbered two to one in what is probably his masterpiece before he finally heads up north for the fateful encounter at Gettysburg in June, July, 1863. But during this year, Lee wins the Seven Days Battle, uh, the Second Battle of Manassas, fights McClellan to a draw at Antietam, crushes Burnside uh, at Fredericksburg, and totally schools a hooker at Chancellorsville. So this is a time of Southern victory after victory after victory, despite fearful odds, and Lincoln somehow holding on to power. Uh, the midterm elections in 1862 provide a real knock for, for the Republican Party. They maintain a plurality in the House um, and manage to hang on in the Senate, but they lose an awful lot of seats because the country is horrified that they can't finish off 
the Confederacy. And in the midst of this crisis, Lincoln looks at the only ray of sunshine. And if you look at the cover of our book, The Last Best Hope, I love the dramatic cover, which the White Fox people expertly put there. I had nothing to do with it. I wish I did. But the White Fox people put the cover up. And boy, does it look beautiful that you can see the cover um, and a mix of it's a Hudson River Valley School picture. It's a mix of this dramatic view of the Capitol in the mix of cloud and sunshine. Lincoln, as ever, sees the ray of sunshine, the tactical draw that was Antietam, but the strategic victory that leaves forced to retreat into his Virginia stronghold and the first invasion of the North comes to nothing. And Lincoln uses this to put forward the most controversial piece of legislation that he ever attempted, the Emancipation Proclamation, the freeing of slaves in the southern states. And Lincoln can only do this if he has something approaching a victory in Antietam, although it draws the best he's going to get. And so he makes it clear to his cabinet, and Washington then is now is a, is a sieve of leaks, and it's, he makes it clear to his cabinet that come the new year, come January 1863, he's going to issue the proclamation. And so in December um, 1862, Lincoln says, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. He's talking about the freeing of the slaves. This is him looking forward that this absolutely has to be done as a measure to save the soul of the American Republic. Um, in those days, the State of the Union Address was not given as a formal speech. Thomas Jefferson had decided it was far too monarchical to do this. And between Jefferson and Woodrow Wilson, that stuffed sure to love the sound of his own voice more than anything else. The president delivered it as a message. And so Lincoln, this is in essence the State of the Union. He goes through a list of all the things going on in the country. It's a frankly rather boring laundry list, but he ends with this high note, this wonderful oration, we shall nobly save or mainly lose the last best hope of earth. And that is still what we struggle with to this day. And all the stories in the book are leaked, linked by this notion that the United States is the most wonderful thing that ever happened, but that our freedom and indeed Republican government is perilous. It requires a roadmap to keep what we've been given. As Franklin said when he came out of the Constitutional Convention, he was asked by a friend, what kind of government are we going to have? And he said to his friend, we have a republic if you can keep it. And that is still our challenge to this day. And through very fraught times, we need a roadmap to keep republicanism, as Lincoln knew. What was this roadmap? This roadmap is realism that the American story is that of realism. It's a history that's been forgotten, that is our past, should be our present, and must be our future. And that's what the book intends to set out to do. And that story of Lincoln going back, Lincoln using the words of Jefferson, who said something to the effect of the United States is the best hope of the world. Lincoln took this and said the last best hope of earth. He's linking himself up with the founders, above all with Jefferson. Lincoln took the Declaration of Independence, of which Jefferson was the primary author, as almost sacred scripture. It's almost as it is for me, almost his religion. And he took this and updates it, this language, uh, to say that we're the last best hope of earth. Last, meaning the perilousness of it. Best, meaning that we are an exceptional example for the world. And that's where we still are. But realism has to be the guide through this. Much as Lincoln had to go back in time to Jefferson to find a way forward, so we in this book go back in time to find realism as a roadmap forward for the American Republic to link up 
the two strains of thought left in the Republican Party now that the neocons have earned their discredit and have run fleeing to the Democratic Party where they belong. Uh, this is a political book, would be our second point beyond the story. This is an overtly political book. I've written 14 books, whether I write 14, 15, or 16. The only people who would have cared would have been my late mother and grandmother, rest them. Uh, even I don't care. I've written an awful lot of books, and whether I write 14, 15, 16, or 20 is immaterial. The only reason I was enticed by the Stand Together Alliance of the Koch Foundation, who have graciously given me a grant to be able to do this, the only reason I bothered writing yet another book is to make a difference historically and fundamentally, to find a way forward to unite these two great things, these two great parties um, these two great factions of the Republican Party, the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians, behind a realist point of view, that that is indeed the entire point of what I'm trying to do. Well, before we get going, what, what is a Jeffersonian and what is a Jacksonian? I mean, we're going to use these terms in a very non-academic sense, but we still have to have a rough idea of who these two groups are. The first thing to say is that they're not of equal size, that the Jeffersonians, although are important in elitist circles, certainly elite circles of foreign policy making in Washington, um, are a minority within the Republican Party. The Jacksonian base of the party, the lower middle class, working class base of the party, which tends to be Jacksonian um, and has been made dominant since the days of Donald Trump. The best thing Trump ever did, I, I can argue, certainly, and, and again, as a disruptor, a lot of pluses, a lot of minuses, but among the huge pluses, beyond seeing China as rightly the pure competitor enemy, beyond up, uprooting our totally brain-dead Middle Eastern policy, beyond force, force the Europeans to spend some real money, um, was throwing out of the party. And although the neocons were always a small minority within Republican Party circles, in terms of foreign policy making, along with the Wilsonian hawks who ran the Democratic Party, they became the dominant thinking school of thought for foreign policy. Um, and this was a catastrophe. The best thing Trump did in terms of the Republican Party was to evict these guys and restore power to the Jacksonian populist base of the party linked to the Jeffersonians. So the neocons are discredited by Trump in his line, no more stupid wars, the promiscuous interventions that characterized Republican thinking, uh, be it Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, all the catastrophes of American foreign policy among its elite, both Democratic and Republican, and making foreign policy, the neocons forming the Republican part of this elite, the liberal uh, Wilsonian hawks forming the Democratic part of this elite, but they agree they've never met an intervention they didn't like. And after spending trillions of dollars and having nothing to show for it, Trump manages to oust them and the Republican establishment, which is the best single thing he ever did. Restoring power, including power over foreign policy making, to the Republican Jacksonians and Jeffersonians. So what unites these guys? Well, before we look at what unites them, let's look at how they're different. I think that's important. Before we look at how realism will unite these two groups, we have to look at their differences. And, the, and these are broad brush statements, but I think a lot of fun. Uh, first, uh, think of it this way. Jeffersonians like Johnny Cash. Jacksonians are Johnny Cash. There's a huge difference. I'm a Jeffersonian. I love Johnny Cash, but that's not my background. My father wasn't a sharecropper. I don't come out of the lower cl middle class, middle class in the South or the West. Uh, that's just simply not my background. Um, I love Johnny Cash as a performer and what he stands for and what he sings about, but that isn't my background. Jacksonians are Johnny Cash. Jeffersonians like Johnny Cash. 
meaning Jacksonians are truly populist in outlook. They're of the people. They care about the American tribe. Um, Jeffersonians like populism, but they look at it from an elitist perch, much as Mr. Jefferson did from his home in Monticello. Um, so there's that. Uh, but remember that Jeffersonians like Johnny Cash, but Jacksonians are Johnny Cash. Jeffersonians, I mean, they both care an awful lot about individual freedom, far more conservatives who are statists and the Wilsonian statists or Hamiltonian statists who run the Democratic Party. Jeffersonians, so they have a different emphasis. Jeffersonians care an awful lot about the First Amendment. Jacksonians care more about the Second Amendment. Jeffersonians care about fire. Uh, the individual liberty group, the libertarian group that promotes personal liberty. Jacksonians care about the National Rifle Organization and the right to bear arms. So although they both care about freedom and individual liberty more than most, their emphasis is slightly different. Um, again, Jeffersonians are elitist populists. The contradiction, though, that is that's what we are, whereas Jacksonians are truly of the people. Over policy issues, I suppose the biggest difference would be that Jeffersonians favor free trade. Uh, Jacksonians were probably more protectionist in general. This is an issue that divides them. But for all these things that divide them, a social, cultural, historical, and even in policy matters, an awful lot more unites them. And this is where they are ripe for an alliance that will form the bedrock of realism, uniting the Republican Party around this old school of thought that used to dominate the party for, 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 for it lost its mind with the conservative fever that crossed the land. So realism can serve as a, as a cement uniting these folks together. Um, among the things that, that, that unite them is that they both fear unfettered federal government power. They don't like centralized power, and they don't generally like people telling them what to do in a way that the other schools of thought, the neoconservatives, the Wilsonians, the Hamiltonians, they don't care that much about individual liberty. They care more about the power of the state, whereas both the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians fear, fear the power of the state. Think of the revolutionary flag, don't tread on me, and you get a good idea of how Jeffersonians and Jacksonians agree. They don't want being told what to, what to do, not by Washington. They want power to be devolved to the lowest level, the most accountable level, where they know the people who are giving them orders. So local and state government taking preeminence, then federal government, and last, a bunch of unelected foreign technocrats who they loathe and have no control over. They don't want to give up power to these guys at all. They fear rule from far away, and as such, the, the next point is that they value American sovereignty. They value human agency. They don't want to give away their rights to people far away. They want to keep them as close to home as possible so that they can control what goes on. They want control and agency over their lives. So in general, they want American sovereignty in foreign policy. They don't want us to sign away our rights to international institutions, international organizations, or to make treaty obligations that we're forced to comply with without making a decision on a case-by-case -case basis. This unites them and makes them very different than the other schools of thought. I mean, I think this is, this is a very important uh, point. Um, and again, the advantage is now the neocons have fled the party, fled the party that the other, the other Jeffersonians and Jacksonians can get this going. So they want agency. This is basic. Another point that unites them is that they have this basic view that they want to defend American values at home rather than extend them abroad. That in essence, foreign policy should be a defensive creed. 
that they don't want to expend, as the neoconservatives and Wilsonian hawks did, they don't want to expend democracy at the point of the gun. Rather, they want America to be an example for the rest of the world, a shining city on a hill, as Ronald Reagan put it, and that anything that makes that city less lustrous, that endangers American democracy, they're against. But they don't really want to make the rest of the world like America. They fear America becoming like the rest of the world. And so it's a defensive creed that they care about the state of democracy, Republican government in America, and they want foreign policy to defend those values, and specifically the American people. They care far less about promoting those, those values to the rest of the world at a barrel of a gun. And I used to use this argument during the Iraq War all the time, that why that, that the Republican Party, the neocons, utterly contradictory, that if you're a Republican... You say to yourself, I don't trust the government to get my driver's license correct. Why would I trust them to run anything important, let alone impose democracy at the barrel of a gun upon the rest of the world, of which I'm certain the rest of the world, they know almost nothing that about Iraq, that I used to say to people, can you explain to me the history of Iraq? And of course, that's something I could do as a foreign policy expert, but they couldn't do. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be trying to impose democracy on a people of whom you know nothing. And this is a basic realist view that unites the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians. Um, they want America to serve as an example for democracy and not extend it at gunpoint. Um, the, in line with this, another point of agreement is that they fear excessive entanglement of America. Um, ex excessive foreign entanglements will ruin American democracy. That war should be a last resort, not a first resort, as the neocon said. For the neocon war-making hammer, every problem looked like a nail. They never met an intervention they didn't like. The problem with this, would say Jeffersonians and Jacksonians at the base of the party, is that by definition, if you're under a permanent war footing, as the United States has been since the end of the Cold War, Donald Trump is the only modern president who has not committed the United States to a major foreign adventure. And if you think about that, that's a horrifying statement that every other modern American president in the post-Cold War era, certainly, but even going back, um, say, from 1990 to 2020, the only president not to commit the United States to a new foreign entanglement or enterprise was Trump. Um, and the reason for this is that the Jeffersonians and Jacksonian base of the party fear the success of entanglement, because as Eisenhower said, if you have an excessive foreign entanglement, what does that mean? It means that you need a centralized federal government with a lot of power. You need secrecy. You're giving power uh, without thinking about it to the CIA, to the FBI, to the Department of Defense. Vast funding, which requires much higher taxes. You're worrying about things abroad rather than things at home. As Tucker Carlson rightly said to Mike Pence, you seem an awful lot more worried about Ukrainians than about Americans suffering through an opioid crisis that has killed double the number of people as died during World War II. It's all about emphasis. There isn't a limited amount of money. There isn't a limited amount of an unlimited amount of attention. And if you spend it all on foreign things, you're going to have higher taxes, less liberty, a security state uh, that's run by secrecy with an awful lot of power concentrated in the federal government and particularly in the executive branch, meaning a corresponding lack of liberty and civil liberties not mattering. That concerns Jeffersonians and Jacksonians who, again, care about America 
and Americans, as an example. That doesn't make them isolationists. No one is an isolationist. This is like saying racism to end conversations. Isolationism has the same term. I've lived all my life abroad. I have spent my life studying foreign policy. I am for engaging in the Indo-Pacific much more vigorously than we are to build alliances there to forestall a war with China. But it's if we had to fight one, we would have to fight one. I would have a Jacksonian view. Everything must be done to avoid that. It must be a last resort. But there are places and times when things are worth fighting for. Certainly engagement, more engagement, infinitely more engagement in the Indo-Pacific makes sense. So if you're saying that you're an isolationist when you say you shouldn't engage in American foreign policy everywhere all the time over every issue, if that makes you an isolationist, not being a promiscuous interventionist, we've lost our mind. And yet the Washington blob, the Washington establishment, that's precisely what they think. The Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians think that no, we need a much more narrow definition of primary national interest. There need to be primary interests that you fight for and engage utterly about, like the Indo-Pacific. There need to be secondary interests where you have concerns like the Middle East, where there's an awful lot of energy coming out, where we have longstanding friends like Israel, uh, where we want to be the offshore balancer, not be involved as a primary interest, but that this matters. And then there are tertiary things that you hope work for in your advantage, but really don't matter. In other words, the gradated foreign policy based on the interests of the American people and not the rest of the world. The problem with our blob is that they've cared too much about the rest of the world and not enough about America. Nobody is saying the rest of the world doesn't matter. But to call that position, this more moderate view, an isolationist view, is insane. And it shows how far gone the foreign policy blob, the always interventionists, are. So, if we accept that all these realist precepts unite the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, we are walking through an open door together to work with them. That they agree on all this, we just now need to delineate what are these realist precepts that unite the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians and can bind them together. If they agree on the next step, looking at our own history to organically find these precepts by telling these stories, if we can reach agreement over these basic ideas, then we have a foreign policy built for purpose that we can use to navigate the rest of the world, being interventionists, but realist uh, internationalists. And that is what this book attempts to do. That's what we're trying to do. Because that they're united over these points is clear. But then moving this forward is what are they united specifically about? Generally, I've just explained what they're united about. But what are they united about specifically? And that's what the rest of the book is about. We look at a history of American realism by telling nine stories with the 10th, our 10th commandment being, if you agree on all this, what would you do? We now have a joined up foreign policy. How would you use that to deal with China, the rise of China, the Middle East, the Ukraine war, Europe, the rest of the world? How would you deal with that if you're a realist? But first we have to delineate, delineate what these specific precepts are and go on from there. And that's what we're going to do with the rest of the book. There's a last thing, though, and I want to end with, which is why I bothered writing this book that's important as I started thinking about doing it. This is a great moment to write the book because the American elite, this foreign policy blob comprised of the always interventionist Wilsonian liberal hawks and the neoconservatives has failed. And I'll tell you a story. When I was about to leave Washington, I did an interview on CNN. I did about 800. But one that I remember was a leading Wilsonian hawk uh, from the Democratic Party was on with me. 
and there were there were arguments that we should intervene in Western Africa. I believe it was Senegal at the time. Though no, it was Liberia again, another country we have absolutely peripheral interests, no major interests of any kind. We have no business considering intervening. And I lost my temper with this guy, and I'll withhold his name to protect the guilty, though he's still a prominent Wilsonian. And I said, look, why don't we make this simpler? Is there anywhere you wouldn't intervene? You wouldn't spend American blood and treasure of Americans for. Is there any country that doesn't rise to the level for you of a primary interest? I'm not an isolationist. You're an always interventionist, and this is lunacy. So let's be let's be let's make this short. Just tell me where you wouldn't intervene. And he wouldn't come up with a country. He would rather have been humiliated by me on TV than limit his ability to intervene literally everywhere. And it's one of those eye-opening moments. There were such things in DC where I thought, oh my God, literally, he will intervene anywhere he can, anywhere he can. And that's how bad things are. And of course, this has failed. We failed in Somalia. We didn't stop the, the underlying tensions in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Somalia, in Haiti, which is an utter basket case after upteen liberations. We failed there. We failed in the forever wars in Afghanistan. What a joke. What a tragic joke. It would be funny if it wasn't a tragedy for the loss of life and the trillion dollars that we spent while neglecting our needs at home, while we have an opioid crisis, terrible roads and bridges, uh, des desperate need of an upgrade on infrastructure. Our educational system is coming to a halt. The teachers aren't teaching them anything except woke indoctrination. Everybody who meets kids coming out of college knows they don't know anything like what we did. A whole generation of people have been failed. And rather than adult deal with the education crisis, the opioid crisis, the failure of crime in big cities everywhere, it's an abomination. I was just in San Francisco, one of my, one of my favorite cities, and was told at a conference not to leave my room. They don't tell me that when I go to Calcutta, but they tell me that in San Francisco. That's a sign of how things are badly things are going. So people are aware of this. They're also aware that after spending all this money and all this tragic blood and treasure, we didn't make Afghanistan better. We didn't make Iraq better. We just got ISIS. So the neoconservatives on the right who've been wrong about literally everything and the Wilsonian hawks on the left who formed this unholy establishment, this blob, have failed. And that basic point in line with every American person who you talk to and the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians who comprise the base of the Republican Party, everybody knows they failed. And in this vacuum is a chance to remake American foreign policy, to remember that we are the last best hope of man, as Lincoln said, and that we have answers in our history in realism that can save the republic once again. And that's what I'm trying to do. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through every chapter, tell stories, look at these precepts. And then when we've done that, we'll have a foreign policy fit for purpose that Jeffersonians and Jacksonians can both unite around and we can save the republic once again. That's what we're trying to do here. So I hope you enjoyed this. It's the first of many. Please do go out right now. Tell all your friends. Buy 10 copies of The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, available for pre-order on Amazon. Don't wait. Do it now so we can defeat the dreaded algorithm of Amazon and get this out to as many people as quickly as possible. Because we, like the Jacksonians, are populists. I want everyone to read this on our own. I refuse to believe people can't read books anymore. I refuse to be that arrogant. I am a populist. I This is evangelical for me. I want everyone to read this book because we are indeed the last best hope. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy this and on to next week.